Once again, that is the gospel according to Luke. Third chapter, first through sixth verse. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate began being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Vituria, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysinus, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caphias, Annas and Caphias were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God's word for God's people, and God's people said amen. amen. You may be seated. I want to talk a little bit about a prophetic voice. A prophetic voice. Uh, we are in the season of Advent, which is a prelude, a prologue, or a precursor to Christmas. And so sometimes it's supposed to be happy and cheerful. It's supposed to be a season of joy and excitement. It's supposed to be about festive decorations and beautiful music. So when I think about this time and I look at the reading we had from Malachi, uh, why would we be scared about the coming of the Lord? Uh, we have to remind ourselves that uh, on the church calendar, uh, Advent is not just about a prelude to the celebration of Jesus. I like to hear people sing, Oh, come Emmanuel, and I like to see poinsettias all over, and I like to light the Advent candles. But it's not just about the celebration of Jesus being born in a manger. That's not what Advent is about, just that. It's not about the events that happened in Bethlehem where there was no room in the inn, but it's also a time to think just a little more broadly about this. Advent means coming. So when we talk about Advent season, we ought to talk about God's coming, not just the first time in Jerusalem, but when he's coming again. I would submit to you that that might be some of the problem of why, why some of us don't always get the power that we need from Jesus. Because every year we get to December, we make him one year old again. All right. We have to think not only about Jesus who came in the manger, but we got to think about Jesus who's coming again. We got to think about not just the past, but the future. We, are, we ought to be concerned about the return. So we hear about this prophetic voice, and it's, it's fitting that we talk about a prophetic voice in this season because I think there's been some confusion about the prophetic voice and what a prophet is actually supposed to do. Uh, we have a prophet speaking uh, 
We're talking about John the Baptist. Uh, that is who is talking. He uh, is talking in preparation for Jesus, uh, fulfilling the prophecies that were laid forth by Isaiah. That is one thing I enjoy about Jesus and I enjoy about learning these Messianic prophecies is that everything that was prophesied to happen for the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. Everything that they said he was going to do, he fulfilled. Being born in Bethlehem, being from Galilee and and, and all of these different things that he did, he fulfilled the prophecies. But he's preaching to Tiberius and Pilate and Antipas and all of these people. These are the people who are in authority. They are government officials during that time, and uh, this is happening, give or take, around, the scholars say, between 27 and 29 A.D., uh, beginning the, 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 the part of John's ministry. Uh, Pontius Pilate, in his will, uh, Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus uh, by having all the people who were born uh, at a particular time, he tried to kill all the young males uh, two years and younger. He, he, he passed away, and he left Judea to a son, and uh, his son ruled so badly that even the Romans had to get him out of there and put their own governor in that area, Pontius Pilate. And then... Uh, the, 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 I said the word tetrarch a couple times. It's a, 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 a tetrarch is, a, for lack of a better term, a petty prince. Uh, a they they're they're ruling, but they're not necessarily in their position by by uh, birthright. You know, Romans were were oppressing the area, and so they had some people in those areas, and so that's what the tetrarch was. And so you have. A new government coming in might be familiar with that since we're about to change over uh, government people right now. So you had a new government coming in, and then you had Anias and Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, sorry, uh, they were the high priests. The Hebrew people had only had one high priest at the time, and that was Anias, sorry. And he had been deposed by the Romans. He was arrested. And so the Romans decided, since we took your high priest, uh, we, we are going to put a pastor, I'm sorry, high priest, in front of you that we want to run uh, the, 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 these things. And so even though this new pa- high priest, sorry, keep slipping up, uh, even though this new past, our high priest is in charge the Hebrew people were like, we know who the actual high priest is. You can't fool us. And so you have these governmental changes going on, and there is time for a prophetic voice in, in the midst of, of, of these people. And so you have, that is who, uh, uh, that is going on, rather not who, but when uh, John the Baptist is preaching. That is when he is starting his ministry, all of that is going on, and, and the word of God was coming. Uh, John's message was not his own. He, as a prophet, was not speaking what he thought fit. He was speaking what God thought fit. 
Uh, and so what was he preaching? He was preaching a baptism of repentance. See, uh, the, the, the Hebrew people were baptizing Gentiles to convert them uh, to become a part of the people of God. That was how Gentiles were supposed to get into the fold because at the time following Jesus was supposed to be a completion of Judaism. And so those who were not born into Judaism, as, as, as what it would have been called now back then, they had to get baptized in, but the other people were born into it. But John was preaching a baptism of, prevent, of, of, uh, of repentance, rather, not just for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. So while we have this new thing going on and you think that this is for other people, John spoke truth to power and said it's not just for the new people, but it's for everybody. So instead of you telling other people they need to get right, you need to get right yourself. And so they would say that the sting in this practice is this call to undergo a right that they saw only fit for Gentiles. I'm born into this. Mm -hmm. I'm Jesus' cousin. How dare you tell me I need to get right? I need to be telling other people to get right. Mm -hmm. That was the message he was preaching, a baptism of repentance. Everybody needed to repent. Amen. And the term repent, when you break it down, is not saying I'm sorry. Repent means to turn away. And not only does it mean to turn, but it's actually a psychological term. So you are supposed to change how you think about it. That is true repentance. If you can still think the same way about that sin beforehand, as you did beforehand, then you may not have truly repented. So this is baptism of repentance, and that is what John was preaching so we know when he was preaching, we have a new government coming in, and what he's preaching is a baptism of repentance. We need to change the way that we think about things, and then we know to whom he was preaching as well. He was preaching to Hebrew religious leaders. He was preaching to tax collectors. He was preaching to soldiers. He was preaching to King Herod and Queen Herodias, which would eventually cost him his life uh, because he spoke truth to power. See, we get confused a lot about what a prophet is supposed to do. One thing, I was dialoguing with uh, Dr. Preston Adams, one of my mentors. He was my youth pastor in Indianapolis at Light of the World Christian Church on 38th Street in Indianapolis, Indiana. He, 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 we, were, we still keep in touch, even though I'm now in Galveston and he is still in Indiana. We keep in touch, and one thing that he had brought up when we were dialoguing over Facebook is that prophets... We look at prophets as uh, clergy, but a lot of prophets don't pastor churches. Uh, prophets speak truth to power so they don't necessarily worry about maintaining a congregation. They got to say what God has to say, what God has to say, and they don't care who they have to tell it to. If God told them to tell it to somebody, they do it. So that's why he would say that the modern day prophets of this day and age, most of them aren't pastors. Most of them don't have churches because you got to be able to speak that truth to power and we have lost power as pastors. Well, some of us have lost it and some of us have given it away. Uh, John the Baptist did not dress 
like other people. It's not covered in Luke, but when you read some of the other Gospels, John the Baptist wore camel hair clothing. He didn't dress like everybody else dressed. He didn't eat what everybody else eat. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wasn't caught up in the trappings of what everybody else had going on because he didn't care what everybody else had going on. He was not trying to be popular. He was not trying to be liked. He had a message to give to the people, and he was going to give it. They must be able to speak truth to power, even if it costs them their life. John the Baptist spoke truth to power and ended up losing his life. We have a lot of people now that won't speak truth to power because they value their lives. Uh, we as pastors, I must admit, have enjoyed a position of privilege, maybe for too long. Um, one of my favorite books is written by Carter G. Wilson called The Miseducation of the Negro. I would recommend everybody read it if you have not. But one of the things that stuck out to me even before I got into this process is he talked about pastors and he said that one of the reasons that pastors had risen to the forefront of the community and, and were leaders and able to say what they were able to say is because being a pastor was one of the few, few professions you could be good at and not get killed. Uh, growing up and growing up before the civil rights era and coming up to the civil rights era, if you were a good businessman, if you owned a good business like Black Wall Street, Greenwood Avenue in Oklahoma, if you look up that, that was one of the wealthiest black neighborhoods at the time. They got too successful, so they got their neighborhoods burned down. If you were successful at any other thing besides being a preacher or a teacher, you were going to be destroyed. And he says that they destroyed, uh, uh, the, the teachers had power because you were allowed to be educated. You are allowed to go to school and, 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 and uh, learn and then pass on your knowledge to others. And so what they did to get rid of the teachers is they desegregated the schools. So super qualified African-American teachers would no longer teach at black schools to teach the black children because they would go to a predominantly Caucasian school or a private school because there was more money in that than teaching at a public school. So that's how they got rid of that. That's what Carter G. Wilson argues in The Miseducation of the Negro. And then there was the preacher. They were allowed to say whatever they want and, and do whatever they want because Sunday, quite frankly, is the most segregated church day of the week. We, 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 will, we may hop churches. We may go from church to church, but we're going to go to a church that looks like us. And so if somebody wanted to rise to power, if you wanted to create a Martin Luther King or a Jesse Jackson or uh, a Reverend Al Sharpton, they got started in the church because they were allowed to become successful and educated and speak truth to power without being uh, interrupted. But that got changed as well. Uh, and the way they changed it was very, very smooth. Uh, there is an article that was just written by uh, Benjamin Dixon. It's called The Systematic Castration of the Black Preacher. And he says in his, in his uh, paper that black congregants have left the church because it no longer feels as though our pastors are prophets crying in the wilderness. Rather, pastors have become prima donnas, entertaining us, 
and leading credence to the very political and economic power structure that still commits the unspeakable injustices. Let me make it plain for you. We have enjoyed power. We have enjoyed being on the big stage. We have enjoyed that so much that we no longer care, some of us, about the people. That's why we would line up and shuck and jive and sambo to meet three hours with Donald Trump and not be able to talk anything about what happened. I don't understand how you can meet for three hours with somebody and come out of said meeting and not know anything that was done. Why? Because you are happy to be close to somebody that might be the president. You might be, you are happy to be on the news. Uh, uh, Jamal Bryant, Pastor Jamal Bryant said it was Andy Warhol's daydream. You took people who nobody else would have known about, people that we've never heard of before, and because they were able to do this, now their name is on the newspaper. Now their, their, their name is on the radio, and now they're going on CNN doing all these tours, but they got played. Now, you are allowed, I'm not going to you know, tell you who to vote for by any means. I, as an individual, can endorse a particular person but as a, as a church, we cannot. That is one of the things that comes with tax exemption. But if I am going to sit down with somebody and put my neck on the line for that, I would want to come away with maybe some capacity expansion grants for the neighborhood, maybe some economic empowerment. I would come away with something because I know meeting with a Republican candidate is going to hurt me. I ought to be able to do something in the community, but nobody else did that. This is getting their Facebook likes up. This is getting them on tour. This might get their honorariums up. And it's got pastors fighting each other in public. But that is what has happened in the systematic castration. They have systematically tried to oppress us. The Bible says in Hosea, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Ah, Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being a priest for me. See, priests get changed out when you reject that knowledge because you have forgotten the law of your God. And also, I will forget your children. We have come to a point where we have started to shun things outside of the Bible. We can be experts on Scripture but not be experts about what's going on in our community. We can speak a good word, but we can't make that word come to action. Uh, and another way that this, this thing has been has been. Uh, destroyed is uh, we, we have approached uh, 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 we have taken and there, there is a, an approach that is taken to these things that when a voice tries to speak up and cry in the wilderness we are told basically just to take it as is be quiet, endure that's why the Black Lives Matter movement has been beat upon so much the Black Lives Matter movement came out in response because our young black men are being murdered in the streets. There are situations where somebody is allowed to empty an entire clip into a young man while he is on the ground and begin to reload. And the other police officer have to stop them. This is what happens over these things. And when you start talking about Black Lives Matter because you can get choked to death over selling cigarettes outside of the package where you can be unarmed in the back seat of your car and somehow magically shoot yourself in the head with a 38. 
Ah, ah, the Black Lives Matter movement came out of that. The Black Lives Matter movement was trying to be the prophet. The Black Lives Matter movement was trying to be the voice in the wilderness speaking truth to power because they were saying, hey, I matter. It's not new. There's a poem out, and I can't recall the name of it at this time, but it's the, one of the punchlines in the poem is, ain't I a woman? We all have worth. And so these movements, these Black Lives Matter people, don't, they don't pastor churches. They're not going to seminary, but they are speaking truth to power. Uh, they are being a voice that cries in the wilderness, but we shun it. In response to Black Lives Matter, people started saying, all lives matter. Here's the problem I have with all lives matter. I do believe every human being has worth. I do believe all lives matter. The problem I hear, though, is the only time I ever hear all lives matter is when somebody is trying to tell somebody that says black lives matter to be quiet. Uh, let me prove it. There was a young man by the name of Devin Guilford, 17-year-old Caucasian young man, got pulled over by the police unarmed. Somehow, uh, the officer that pulled him over, his body camera got disabled somehow. And then somehow, this young man ended up with seven shots in himself, and the, and the officer said he feared for his life. All Lives Matter was nowhere to be found on that matter. Matter of fact, the people that brought it to life was the Black Lives Matter movement. So that is how you do that. You try to oppress them. And in response to All Lives Matter, you, you, in response to Black Lives Matter, rather, you say All Lives Matter and you try to squash it. Uh, and then in, 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 in response to that as well, um, there was Blue Lives Matter in return uh, 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 of uh, protecting law enforcement officers. And I have, let me, let me say this, I have nothing against good law enforcement officers who operate with integrity and protect our streets. I have a problem with those who will shoot unarmed people and then lie about it and plant evidence. I have a problem with that. So, though there, there are people who hold these thoughts that you can't say anything about the bad cops without somehow incriminating all cops. And so if you say something about someone in, South, in, in the Carolinas shooting a Walter Scott on video, shooting him in the back as he's running away, and then going up to his body and dropping the taser on his body and saying, oh, he tried to go for my taser, and that's why I shot him. If you say something about that, you somehow are no longer entitled to, to, to police services, rather, if your house was broken into because you hate cops. It's not that. You have to be able to call out the bad. And so the Blue Lives Matter report came up in response to that. Here's the problem I have with the Blue Lives Matter stuff. It, again, it's in response to trying to, be, to, to make Black Lives Matter be quiet. Uh, on the afternoon of November 28th, and Officer Garrett Swayze was, was one of the first responders to that horrible tragedy where that person went into that Planned Parenthood clinic and started shooting people. He lost his life in the line of duty. Where was Blue Lives Matter then? The response was muted. It's an article about the whole thing that monitored the internet and the metrics of everything on the Huffington Post that talks about that. When officers are dying in the line of duty, we don't see Blue Lives Matter. We only see blue lives matter when someone of African-American descent is killed by a police officer. So that is how you try to shut down 
the voice crying in the wilderness. You tell them to be quiet and take it. Uh, Martin Luther King said in his letter from Birmingham jail, said that first he must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached a, the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes that he can set a timetable to another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And so that is what is going on, if I could provide a personal example for this, because it happens in every seminary class I'm in. I go to a predominantly white seminary, so I'm usually one of, uh, of the minority in the class. And if there are 30 classmates there, there might be one or two black people in the class. And we're in a predominantly white uh, uh, denomination, so that's to be expected. But every time we talk about liberation theology, every time we talk about injustice, every time we talk about racism, there's always somebody in the class, somebody who's training to be a pastor, mind you, that says we shouldn't talk about such things. We should leave those kind of things alone because talking about it only makes it worse. Talking about it makes it go. No, talking about it allows those who are being a bully to continue to do it because they know ain't nobody else going to do anything about it. When you stifle that voice that's crying in the wilderness, when you stifle that voice that's supposed to be speaking truth to power, they allow those things to go on. Goes on and uh, Dr. King says, uh, the contemporary church is often a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. Now, he wrote this about 40, 50 years ago, but you would think he was still alive watching what's going on right now in 2015. Weak and ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is often the arch supporter of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is controlled, is consoled, sorry, by the church silent and awful vocal sanction of things as they are, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the, 21st, or the 20th century. I am meeting young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. The people are not coming to church not because they have a problem with Jesus. Nobody has a problem with Jesus. Atheists don't have a problem with Jesus. Buddhists don't have a problem with Jesus. Hindus don't have a problem with Jesus. Muslims don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the so-called Christians and how we treat people. How we treat people and how we sit on the sidelines when certain things happen. We ought to be the voice crying in the wilderness. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Didn't he say, love your enemies and bless them that curse you? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Didn't he say, let justice roll down like waters? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Christ? The question is not whether or not we'll be extremists, but what kind of extremists we'll be. 
Will we be extremists for hate? Or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice? Or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? That's what we have to do. We have to be the voice crying in the wilderness because if we don't be the voice crying in the wilderness, everything will fall apart. And this will get worse than it's going to get. And that is what John was trying to do when he spoke truth to power. When he told Herod about himself, he was speaking truth to power. And he did it from the wilderness because he was not concerned about the trappings. You couldn't buy him anything and, 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 and get him quiet. You couldn't get him in front of people and give him a bigger church and make him be quiet. He said what he had to say because God told him to say it. He spoke that truth to power. Uh, so so, so we, we, we know when John is preaching. And we know what he is preaching about, and we know to whom he is preaching. But who is he preaching for? He's preaching for Jesus. Uh, Jesus and John were often compared to, in some of the books I've read, your your W.E.B. Du Bois and your Booker T. Washington. Uh, But they worked together. See, during during these times, uh, uh, the time of W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington, they both wanted the advancement of the black people. They both were their own voice sort of crying in the wilderness. They just went about it different ways. To paraphrase, basically, Booker T. Washington thought black people should all get trained and get good jobs and do what they know to do in order to elevate themselves and elevate the community as a whole. And Booker T. Washington said, well, not necessarily that, but we need to have the leaders elevated as well because we're going to need leaders, so a.k.a. a talented tent of people, to guide us through this. And so they both wanted the advancement of the people but they had different ways about it. But the difference between W.E.B. Du Bois and, and, and uh, Booker T. Washington putting them in comparison to a Jesus and a John the Baptist is that John the Baptist and Jesus worked together. And not only did they work together, but they knew John knew his role. He understood that he was the herald for Jesus. That's why he said, there's one coming after me that I am not fit to tie his shoes He understood that he was the herald for Jesus. What does a herald do? A herald is an official messenger bringing the news. It is a person or thing that is viewed as a sign of something that is about to happen. It's a sign. And what do signs do? I'm reminded when I see that term sign of not only John the Baptist, but the gospel according to John, because in the gospel according to John, there are no miracles. In the gospel according to John, everything that Jesus does is called a sign because signs point the way. Signs point you to what's going to happen. And so what John the Baptist was doing is he was pointing to Jesus. And he was pointing to Jesus by quoting the scripture. He was the voice of the one in the wilderness crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make the path straight and every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made smooth. He's coming out of Isaiah chapter 40. And that verse is kind of partial to me. Ah, he's crying out in the wilderness. And so had he read a little farther, it would have said, what shall I cry? It says that all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass, excuse me, the grass withers and the flower fades because the, Lord, the Lord's breath blows upon it. Surely all people are grass. Ah, the grass withers. The flower fades. 
but the word of the Lord lasts forever. So you should be able to speak truth to power because your power comes from something that is not human. Your power comes from the Lord. And so we understand that. And why would I be scared of grass? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. And had he read a little further down Isaiah 40, he would have said, Has thou not known? Has thou not heard? The everlasting God, the creators of the earth, neither faints nor is he weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to them who have no might he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Even the young man shall utterly fall. But they, they that wait upon the Lord, they shall mount up as wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is what we have to lean on when we're speaking that truth to power. Because sometimes it'll get weary. Sometimes it'll get tough. Sometimes you won't know where your help is coming from. It'll seem like you're on the bad side, but God will step in in that mist and give you your strength. He'll give you your wings as eagles, and if you aren't into your flying years anymore, he'll allow you to run. And if you're not into your running years, he'll allow you to walk. Just wait on it. Wait on it, and you'll be able to speak that truth to power because he knew who was coming behind him. It was a man born of a virgin that suffered under Pontius Pilate. He came through 42 generations, knew no sin, but took on the sins of us. He took my sins and your sins and your sins and all of our sins to Calvary. Then he died, but that wasn't where the story ended. He got up three days later with all power in his hand. And that's what we are celebrating. But not only that, but that's not the end. The, the, the end is that he's coming back again. And so that's what we're celebrating in this Advent season. We're coming for, we're waiting for Jesus to come again. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, in our neighborhoods. Come, Lord Jesus, in our jobs. Come, Lord Jesus, in our lives so that we can have our own understanding and get some of that power. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.